Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living With Power Hope podcast. I am Lena Abjamra. I'm your host, and as usual, it is awesome to have you back here. We are doing just this awesome series, if you've been following here, called Dear Lena. And then for the last few weeks, we've taken a little bit of a detour. We've run a few uh, conversations with people that I absolutely love and that I've gotten to know, some more than others. And today is just a unique treat for me. I am going to re-bring on this show a person who has been on before who is truly a dear friend of mine. Uh, some of you uh, already uh, have seen the announcement for the podcast. Others of you are just getting this update today. And so however it is that you came upon us, we welcome you. We thank you for subscribing. And let me tell you a little bit about this uh, woman who's going to be on this show today. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield, which if you follow any kind of Christian a thought or conversation. I'm sure you're familiar with her name. She's written a number of books. Uh, one of my favorite books uh, that she wrote, her first the story of her coming to Christ from a former lesbian identity. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University and wrote the story of that at, uh, in her book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. We've given it uh, away here on this podcast before. It's a great book. If you um, are looking for anything in that in that realm, you need to get that book. Uh, most recently, she has a book that has come out called The God comes with a house key, practicing radical, uh, ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world, a book that we've also talked a little bit about here, uh, but we're going to explore a little bit more. Today, I thought we'd bring her in and talk about issues related to relationships, friendships, intimacy, and some of those things that in the era of COVID, many of us are struggling with. And so, Rosaria, you are now living with uh, a, a busy, big family, but also most recently have uh, a few pets that you've adopted. Tell us a little bit how you're doing and, and what you got going on there on the farm. Yeah. We're, yeah, the farm. Yeah, we're hanging in there. We really are. I, I, as you and I texted this morning, it's to the benefit of your listeners that this is um, audio and not video. Uh, but uh, but we're hanging in there. We've got um, we have nine chickens, um, and they mostly live outside. But I, I think we've got one who really wants to be a house chicken, and that's not good. Uh, and then you know we have the dogs, and we have the cat. And as you know, Lena, I had to I had to. Uh, put us on pause for a moment so I could go grab an extra can of fancy feast so that we could have an hour of uninterrupted conversation. Um, and then my, well, my, my grandson, I mean, I, he's not, yeah. a pet, he's a human being, but I, I am now officially homeschooling again, a kindergartner. And wow. um, I want you to know for you and all of the people like you, Lena, who are minimalists, people who came to me and said, why do you still have a kindergarten curriculum you know, you haven't used it in 10 years. Well, just newsflash, I'm using it again. So uh, I don't think you're well, ever listen, going to convince me to throw things I mean, away at this point. But next yeah, step, you guys are a goat. I think that's the next thing. I mean, you, well, you really we're not zoned for goats, but when my daughter was in 4-H and she won a ribbon with Owen the goat and she heard on the loudspeaker that he won in the meat goat category, she was very, very upset and did try to convince me that we needed to toss him in the back of grandma's Lexus and bring him home and have him eat the porch. But you will be happy to know that I exercise um, unique and uh, original uh, self-defense against such things. And so we don't have a goat. But, well, I, I'm relieved to hear that because, you know, we are going to talk a little bit about hospitality today. You're right. a firm believer. I mean, you really believe in, in hospitality. I really do. Um, why? Uh, because I and millions of other people were saved through the hospitality ministry of faithful Christians, because hospitality is the clearest way 
that the word becomes made flesh. And it's the most obvious way of stepping into the crushing loneliness that is fairly pervasive in modernism, excessive now in COVID modernism, but it's, you know, crushing loneliness has been around for a while. Um, and it's a clear command. Do you think in scripture. People are talking about loneliness more, or do you think there's a genuine greater sense of loneliness now than before? Oh, I think there's a genuine, I think, it, I think there's a desperate, dangerous sense of loneliness now combined with, I think our, um, understandable and often useful, like for example, this experience right now, uh, dependence on technology. I think that that um, you know people in my life that I, you know whom I love and uh, and really depend upon um, are experiencing a level of isolation and loneliness and fear of the future that is unlike what they have experienced in the past, and so. Um, so anyway, I think I think it's I, I do think it is um, exacerbated by lockdowns and shutdowns and uh, you know and fairly constant new information. And you know, Lena, you're the doctor. I'm the you know I'm the poet philosopher. But you know, COVID nineteen has constantly constantly been called the great equalizer, and I just think that's. I think it's crap. I don't think that's true at all. Um, you know, Adam. <laughs> what do you think people mean when they say that? Well, they mean that you know somehow we are all affected by it, and you know what? We are disproportionately affected by well, it. Well, true. The, the the disease clearly affects certain groups far right. worse than others. Um, the countermeasures, lockdowns, no school, etc. You know, that's. I mean, quite frankly, increase the wealth of Amazon and globalization yeah. and it's destroyed small businesses. And, um, you know, and obviously certain comorbidities raise the risk of complication and death for COVID-19. And, right. and by God's grace, I, you know, nobody in this house is in any of those high risk groups. And so, uh, you know, we're taking our vitamin D and we're exercising and we're, um, you know, wearing our masks when appropriate. Uh, but you know what? Life has not changed at the Butterfield. Right. So right. don't blow us in. Don't send the, you know, if you send the uh, the authorities to our door, we'll invite them in for a meal. How's that? Well, I like that. But, you know, let me let me go back a bit. I want to lean into a little bit this loneliness and hospitality. I want, I want us to yeah. define some terms. We'll get to sure. hospitality in a second. But, I mean, loneliness, two thoughts on that just real quick. Because I think, you know, you hear the word and I, I feel like there's a sort of stigma. Like nobody wants to say I'm lonely. Like it almost feels like you're a single and a loser when you say it, right? I mean, even single sort of hesitate to use that term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Why does it make us ashamed to admit this loneliness? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that it, there's a theological under underpinning to this. And, you know, you know that theology always swings by the big pendulum. And I, I think that for quite some time, we have been asking singles to live out a New Testament, uh, well, not just a New Testament, to live out a biblical uh, uh, pr practice of sexuality, which is right, but the church has failed to live out a biblical practice of hospitality, which has created this culture where singles are disproportionately isolated in ways that was not really the vision of a biblical and especially New Testament community mm. where the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of biology. That's not to say that your 
covenant family is not important. It's just putting it in perspective. You say as much in the beginning of your book, um, Thrive. Um, mm. But um, so I, I think what's hard is that singles don't want to sound whiny. You don't want to sound blame shifting. But when you turn the page of your heart, you know, against the page of scripture, all kinds of things aren't matching up. And you're just trying to figure out what part of this you can change and maybe not wanting to ask other people to change the parts that they can change. But I think, I think, you know, we truly are all in this together and in Christ, you are my sister which means in Christ, you are the aunt of my children, uh, in, uh, which means in Christ, you are also the caregiver of my chickens. Uh, but anyway, that might not, that, maybe right. that's a stretch. Maybe that's a stretch. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it means that, in, you know, in a family, people don't get together um, by invitation only. People mm-hmm. know what time dinner is and they show up, whether, you know, whether they have right. anything in their hand or not. And so, I, you know, and I, and I often, you know, maybe because of my history, often the question is, how do I minister to the LGBTQ community? And, and I, I just want to remind people that when you minister to the LGBTQ community, you're actually calling people out of something. And I hope you have something to offer in return. And, and I know you have the gospel and that is not the small, that is very big, but the gospel is not just a word. The gospel is a man. He is mm. alive and he has a particular expectation for how we embrace one another, especially the isolated, the downtrodden, um, the lonely. Well, and I think in that regard, you're right. The LGBTQ community and the singles community do share a little bit of, of that in common, uh, you know, without getting into too much, but you sort of are on the margins of what is considered, you know, socially like, you know, acceptable in a culture, although that's changing. I do see that. I mean, I think that there's a huge number of singles in the church and, and, and whatnot, but, but now moving into, okay. So define for me, hospitality in your mind, what is that going over to somebody's house for dinner? Well, it can include all that, but, but biblically speaking, hospitality is the love of the stranger and that love in all, every time a Christian talks about love, it's not, it's not a silly, vapid, um, mm-hmm. upper sticker love. It's a bloody, bloody, bloody love. So the, the love that we are expected to extend is the love that, um, seeks the stranger, you know, seeks him or her out and, um, and, and welcomes the neighbor and by God's grace watches the stranger and the neighbor become part of the family of God. How many visits to someone's house do you have to make before you feel connected? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it, of course, the answer is always, it depends, but right. I think that there should be no keeping score. Like, you know, Lena, how many meals have you and I eaten in our life? I don't know. Many. Have they all been something we remember? No. Have they all? I mean, it doesn't have to even be a meal, right? I mean, you're yeah. like not that many, but we, we talk. Like, right, right, how right. Many right. Well, some of it is also how much willingness you... I mean, I'll say when our relationship, like some of the deepening of friendship happens when you're willing to bring honestly to the table a struggle, as right. an example, right. which I think 
So you can go to somebody's house a million times, right? And never yeah. really go deeper. Right. Except for that when it's hospitality, I mean, what, you know, what I would say is that when, the, when, when we're talking about um, the you know, eating a meal in a Christian home, it isn't just eating a meal in the Christian home because at a certain point, you know, the kids clear the, the table and mm-hmm. the coffee mugs and the Bibles and the Psalters are, you know, passed around. And at some point, mm-hmm. Jesus is now clearly at the table because uh, we are going to open the word of God. We're going to sing the word of God. We're going to take prayer requests and everybody at that table is, is, is important and valuable and welcome to participate, including unbelievers, including, you know, neighbors that just happen to be passing by. Um, And that's a very new, you know, that's a, that's a new Testament um, ethos and practice. So at some point, you know, we have all kinds of troubles and concerns and we're going to bring Jesus into the conversation, not to end the conversation, but to deepen it. And that is a kind of intimacy that the watching world has never seen before. And it's necessary. I, I think that's that's right there. I mean, I agree. I think I can't tell you how often, you know, there's a frustration with, with hospitality because it's this idea like you show up, you eat a meal, you small talk. It's exhausting. I'm an introvert. Oh, exactly. It's exhausting. You kind of go like, wow, I'm just like, I wish I, mean, I can't do this regularly. No, exactly. It, you're sort of cutting through that and saying, no, you got to take this deeper. And so really the onus in this is, is on, uh, is on the person who understands biblical hospitality, the house person. Yep. You're so you guys do this every, pretty much you open the Psalter, you take prayer requests at every meal. I know we've talked about this in the past, but you generally, generally do that on a daily basis. We generally do that on a daily basis. And when we were, you know, when, when in, I guess it was March and April when, um, uh, you know, everything was, was shut down. What we would all do at that point is everybody who had a phone um, mm. put somebody on FaceTime and um, and we gathered people in that way. And then, you know, we really, I'm going to tell you, I know this sounds super whiny, but the Butterfields really tried to obey all of the rules <laughs> and we failed miserably. <laughs> okay, so just blow me in. We failed miserably, but we really tried. But we live in North Carolina, and we still open the windows. And um, you know, there you have it. Um, yeah, right. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, we'll just leave that because I was actually, ironically, I was going to ask. Like, we are living in COVID, and so many people have sort of hesitated. I mean, in Chicago, I mean, we're so strict. Like, our church still doesn't meet in person, and we meet in I, person. Well, I think this has taken a toll too. I, I have to confess, like. There's a certain place in Zoom meetings, like you can only do so many. Oh, yeah. God bless my pastor. I mean, he does every, you know, they pre-record, they show it, you know, but there is a tension. You feel like you can't help. You almost feel like the church, my understanding is it continues to grow, but you feel like a stranger in it. Yeah, yeah. And And you don't know sort of who this community and which makes you feel more lonely. And so, so of course, I am, you know, one of of the things that in coming on on this episode today, you know, I just asked you recently to write the foreword uh, for my book, Thrive, that came out a few years ago, and, and you so graciously did. And so you're familiar with sort of my thoughts on this, but, but I think, you know, it's been, to me, it's interesting. I think singles sometimes are stuck in this catch 22 sort of, you know, cycle of feeling bad, you know, so sort of this lack of intimacy, understanding that we were made, like every Christian understands, every human understands that we're created for relationship, we're created right. for closeness, right. and yet not knowing where to get it. And so we settle for, you know, d- 
dis- besetting sins and right. temporary satisfactions and right. things that you're like, you know, are going to harm you, but it's almost like better than feeling nothing, you know? And so, and then you get into more defeat, which makes you want to alienate more, which right. kind of gets this vicious cycle of shame right. and not wanting to, to even show up to someone's house. I'm like, how do you, how do you break into that? Right. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, again, one of the big challenges is that it is not the obligation of the single Christian to invite herself into the life of mm-hmm. a family in the church. It's the obligation of the family in the church to do that. And so the other challenge is, what do you do when you know, you're asking your father for bread and you feel like your church is giving you stones. Yeah. And so what I like so much about your book is you are not Pollyanna about the fact that singleness has been called many things, but it can be and often feels like very much an affliction. I understand that that Paul calls it a gift that, and I would say that's a very particular, uh, that's a very particular, um, example of a ministry calling, but even when the church just keeps saying that to you, hey, Lena, what a great gift you have. You know, that is a great gift. I think what happens is, especially for single women, it's almost as though you're told you can't have a life because, hey, you have this great gift and you got to use it all the time in the ministry of the church. You're not somehow this idea that everybody else gets to live by the grace of God, but you as a single woman, it's all works righteousness for you, you know? And so I think, I think it really, we, we have to have this conversation. The conversation has to be had, not just, and it shouldn't be just singles. So I, I'm a real, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I don't advocate for the singles group trying to do this and the, you know, the, the singles ministry trying to do this, the, the church is the family of God. God is a covenant keeping God. Um, we are necessary in all of our lives. While I do believe that marriage, biblical marriage is normative in a fallen world, you know, the effects of the fall are spiritual, physical, ecclesiological, familial, and cosmological. And singleness will be an affliction. Um, even if you are called to it, and even if it is a gift that serves you in ministry, there are still some very clear easy to anticipate hard times. And I want to see the church step up. And so what I would say though, for you, when you ask, well, what do you do when you get into a cycle of besetting sin? You know, first of all, the temptation is always to, uh, to let shame create further isolation. And, and so it's a little bit like other problems where, you want to say, well, you need to have a solution in place before the problem escalates because it will, mm-hmm. you know, we, we are all, if you're alive, unless you're dead, you're struggling with besetting sin. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so we're all in that situation, but it's good to have people who know you well, who have, who have been always part of that daily conversation with you and who really know how to hold your ankles as you're dangling off the cliff and, mm-hmm. and, and who are willing, you know, to get that close to the edge with you. So those are the relationships that you build up before you have a crisis. Um, but then the church on the other side needs to anticipate that there are people struggling in these ways. And, um, and I think it's p- totally appropriate to prayerfully designate families in the church who are, who are capable of, um, stepping into 
uh, a very open, regular open door relationship with the body of Christ. We are called to love each other in the body of Christ in a way that is that is healing and nourishing and consistent and pervasive and that makes the world stop and say, what in the world is going on in that house? Right. I mean, because, because it is, a. I mean, even I'm thinking, even now we're talking about this and I'm thinking about people like who have been in the public eye lately, who have fallen pretty dramatically into specifically sexual sin. And we see it by the way, you know, in, in, in both hetero and, and same sex attractions. But we're hearing stories like that. And, and often there are even people who like one particular example of a person who seemed like they were very surrounded by accountability. Like, it's interesting because I feel like, I still sort of wrestle with this idea of like, I think a, to have that sort of openness, you kind of go back to, you have to have that hospitality, that regular fellowship communion with a family or with a person or with a, you know, with the church about bottom line, but you can, you can still like, do we love, or I mean, I'd love that quote you have on your page. I saw it on your, on your biography page in in your website. It says, um, and I I really think there's something so, so, so deep here. You wrote, I learned the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. How much greater about the size of a mustard seed? I, I, I feel like at the heart of all of this conversation is this individual need to feel intimately related to someone. And I think obviously in Christ, we understand what you say in that quote, which is there has to be this intimacy with Christ. And I feel like it's a language we don't know anymore. Right. And I would, you know, if I were to revise that, that quote for today's crisis, where exactly it is terrifying, you know, you just watch, you are watching people fall off the rails. And um, not only do we need a greater intimacy with God than our sin, we need a greater intimacy with God than our perceived gifts. Because when you see people in the ministry fall, I can guarantee you there have been a hundred conversations that go like this, Bob, you're off the rails. You got to stop. Oh, but you know what? I can't now. I'm involved in this ministry and that ministry and that ministry. And that Mm -hmm. is Satan's greatest. It seems to be his current greatest ploy is to, is to use our pride in such a way that we actually believe that somehow Our gifts are necessary to the gospel. And you know what our gifts are. Our gifts are filthy rags. God can clean them. God can use them. But on their own, they are filthy rags. They stand for nothing but pride. So, you know, I I, I don't know. I'm sure that's not where your question was leading. But I just wanted to say that as we're we're watching people fall off the rails, please know that and and also there are different kinds of accountability right i mean i'm a presbyterian the kind of accountability that a presbyterian talks about is a presbyter is, is an accountability that stands way outside of the people who want to pat me on the back and say add a girl you're awesome but the kind of accountability that somebody who has a ministry named after him has or a college president who um, is particularly influential and only hires yes men that kind of accountability is not legit. You know, it's not legit. If all you can do is gather people around you who love you so much that they, or who love you, not in the best use of the word love, but who, um, 
who are, you know, just who, who can't stand up to you. That's not love. Well, and, and that's and not love. Right. And a lot of these examples, ironically, so I think this is, you kind of go back to sort of making the circle of what does this hospitality look like? Because I think a lot of these examples are people who seem like they have very busy social lives. Like it's not like they're sitting at home alone, but I think you can have a lot of people in your life and be very busy socially and have zero true, what you describe in your book and what we've talked about in the past. And even earlier in this episode, biblical hospitality. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of, here's what we are. And I think that, like, I, you, I have sat yeah. through small groups and been like, everything's fine. And behind right. the door, you know, right. I'm struggling with. But that's because biblical hospitality requires two things one, a willingness to suffer, and two, a commitment to privacy. Mm. So if it's hospitality, you're going to lose money, not make money. And if it's hospitality, when someone comes to Christ, you're never going to tweet about it and you're never going to blog about it. So you do not benefit in any individual way from hospitality. You pour yourself out like a drink offering. You are the Lord's servant and your, um, the, the gift that you receive is the amazing reality that the Lord reigns and he moves mountains and he moves mountains and they're not falling on your head. That's amazing. Right there. That's it. Mm-hmm. But real hospitality, Christian hospitality depends upon privacy and suffering. And if you're making money on it or you're blogging about it and patting yourself on the back and everybody else is, forget it. And that's, you know, that's part of my what what Christians don't realize is you might be serving with one hand and then with the hand that's on Twitter and Facebook or what, you know, Instagram, whatever, whatever is your particular, you know, heroin, mm-hmm. you know, hit, you are canceling out every good that you're doing. That's right. Because there's nothing on social media that leaves room for, for slowness to speak, suffering and um, privacy. So if those are all necessary in hospitality, then, you know, what, in my opinion, the only thing you need to do on social media is tell people that the prayer meeting has been moved yeah. from seven thirty to seven because you know your your you Zoom account. I, I agree. I, a couple of years ago, I, we we sort of maybe a year ago we sort of strategically switched. I mean, we I don't share a lot of personal stuff on you know on social media for for a number of reasons, but I found it more often hurtful than helpful. Right. Yes. Constantly right of all the things. And and yes. frankly, half the time when there was hurt, it wasn't like like it's funny how you perceive what somebody's living and right. in reality is not the same. And so I've sort of taken that stance and I, I realized that in some ways that might limit certain, you know, yeah, definitely growth. You know, definitely. personalities are not completely shining, but I think it's it's for the best in the long run. Well, what do you tell people? There are a couple I want to go to a couple different areas that are completely unrelated. I'll start with sure. one quick one people talk about the early church, you know, I've heard sort of people accuse the model of the early church as being sort of a, is it was Jesus a socialist and sort of acts to sharing everything in common, going into acts five, you know, four and five. What do you think of that? Like how much responsibility do we have to physically, you know, put all pool our, our monies with lo- our lo- local church body and give them? Right. Well, first of all, that was voluntary, you know, acts that, that, you know, that the, the example that we see in the early church in acts was voluntary. People were voluntarily, selling their goods and putting it at the feet of the elders. And so, 
Uh, and I think you could see it. You see a great deal of that today. That's totally appropriate. Yeah. But no, Jesus was not a socialist by any stretch of the imagination, um, because you you see how important the idea of of private everything is in the gospel. You have a private relationship with the Lord that has public, you know, that has public manifestations, of course. Um, but the idea that you will be useful, you know, you, Lena, me, Rosaria, that we would be really useful. If what we did right now is just took all of our money and gave it away. Okay, well, that is great. But what about next week? Mm-hmm. See, what we, what we do if we do that is we become a burden to our church. If every human being tithed 10%, our churches could put the welfare state out of business. If we could return to faithful church membership, that, that, and if we were faithful with what we have, uh, that would be an amazing thing. But yeah, no, that's a complete misreading to say that Jesus is a socialist because it relies on the idea that somehow that was a commandment of the church, and it was not. Right. It was a voluntary it is sad, movement of the Holy so much physical need within the walls of the church. And it's, I agree. I think sometimes like, I think if everybody just gave biblically, you know, mm-hmm. whatever your New Testament belief on, yeah, it would, people say if, if, if Christians gave, you know, 10%, it would resolve world, world hunger, which I think is probably true. Either map and you can find that online, but so, yeah. And then, so, so again, moving now back to sort of, you know, I, I feel like I always like to talk about sort of the, the, the LGBTQ topic with you, because you do have, you know, a lot of, vested interest in, in ministering to the community and having come out of it. But um, a lot of, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, and I'm curious if you think that's true or what um, there's a rise, I think in general with um, bisexuality, you know, all of that categories, whatever subcategories you want to put in, but lesbianism in general and, and, and transgenderism in the specifically, I find I'm reading a, in woman and younger woman. That's right. So there's sort of this confusion about identity that you're seeing even more in women than in men and, and younger women yes, than in men. absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that whole issue of, yeah, yeah. of why yeah. that? Yeah, and it is. It's a fascinating phenomenon. But if you think about it, if you despise gender, if you despise gender, and if you look at, at uh, you know, if you look at Genesis and you misread what it means to be made in the image of God, right? Made in the image of God, male and female. Uh, that means that sexual difference is actually ontological. And what that means is that you will be male and female in heaven and in the New Jerusalem. And you will be male and female in heaven and in the New Jerusalem, whether you had a quote unquote sex change operation or not. But in a world that has so devalued what it means to be male and what it means to be female, um, I'm not at all surprised that you are seeing androgyny as a, um, you know, almost as a, uh, a progressive, important uh, act of, um, you know, just self-actualized personhood. Mm. But I was at a speaking event. It had to have been at least three years ago now. And a, a, a woman uh, raised her hand and she said, hi, you know, I'm the, I am the, uh, the chairperson of the counseling center here. I was at a major university and I don't want you to share the gospel. I'm not a Christian. I just want to know why one out of four women are coming into my health uh, department with anxiety and depression. And they are leaving three months later, wanting a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy. And then shortly after that, uh, you know, world magazine talked about this rapid onset gender dysphoria 
And then recently, Abigail Schreier, who is not a Christian, but is a Jewish um, Wall Street Journal uh, uh, you know, reporter, wrote a phenomenal book called Irreversible Damage, where she talks about rapid onset gender dysphoria as it affects you know, teenagers, young teenagers. And the book is phenomenal. I, I strongly recommend it for, for everybody who just wants to be, you know, have a heartbeat and your eyes open. Uh, to to read because she as a as a journalist goes through and looks really deeply at uh, what's inside Obamacare and what is um, inside the um, the the anti bullying LGBTQ rights activist movement within you know elementary schools and finally her conclusion and I think she is absolutely right that this is a social contagion it is a lot like. Uh, anorexia and bulimia and, you know, that um, false memory syndrome that came out about 20 years ago. And, and, um, and the reason it's there, the reason it's there is because all people, but especially vulnerable people will do anything to have these two things, a cause and a team And that's what cutting off your breasts and having a hysterectomy and demanding that at the age of 14 will get you right now. I am convinced that should Jesus tarry and should, uh, should we get through this, which I believe we, we, you know, I'm a post millennial, so I actually believe we will, but uh, you know, I have to put that in there. Right. Um, But Mm -hmm. um, should that happen that further, you know, generations will look back on these days and say, do you see how barbaric these people were? They genitally mutilated their children. You know, that's maybe maybe a nose hair above, you know, sacrificing them to Moloch. But, you know, mm. we're all doing it in the name of, oh, we're so progressive. You know, we're so progressive. So I, I would strongly recommend that book because it talks in two levels, both it talks about how the individual girl would fall into this. And then it talks about how the culture has created a path for her to go there. Then it talks about parents and how parental rights are being completely, you know, snuffed away in this new, in this new movement. And finally, it makes a very provocative conclusion that the way this is going to end is in a very old-fashioned, old-school feminism, as in first-wave feminism, there are going to be a lot of women suing their parents, their schools, and their physicians. Do you think it will end that way, or do you think it will continue? Oh, that's what she says. That's what Schreier says. I'm I'm not prophetic enough to know how this is going to end, but here's what I do know. The church needs to be ready for people who have been casualties of transgender violence right. to right. enter into our churches. We need to be, we need to see these people as image bearers of a holy God, even though at first glance we can't tell if they're male or female. And we need to remember that the gospel will be sweeter for them, maybe, than we will understand, because they will be made whole and complete in the New Jerusalem because there is no gender mutilation in heaven. And so how, speak maybe for a second or for a few seconds to the parents of people who might be now walking through the pain of watching their kids. Yes. Well, see, that's, and I do, I often recommend, this is not a Christian book, so put all the caveats that you want to, but it's extremely useful for parents to know 
what, you know, to just sort of see the, see the writing on the wall right now. Um, and I would say specifically for Christian parents, Christian parents, if you are sending your covenant children to public school, do you know what they are learning? Now, you know, you can hear the edge in my voice. Okay. I, I think especially given where public schools are right now on this, um, the subject of sex education and other things, I, I think that sending your child to public school is a little bit like sending them to the Philistines for education. Now, saying that puts a huge burden on parents, right? What if I can't afford Christian schools? Well, and I think that's also where we need to be really willing, those of us who are in Christian higher education, to ready ourselves to take casualties and ready ourselves to make sure that our homeschool co-ops and our um, and our classical Christian schools uh, have room for people who who maybe can't can't get there the usual way. Because if I believe that no Christian child should be in public school, and I believe that, then I have to be willing to make some sacrifices so that I can actually live that one out. Well, and and honestly, I do talk with a lot of parents that say that the deviation from faith and from, you know, Christian Orthodox ideas happen to their kids in college. Like, you know, sort of, there isn't, yes. there are some Christian colleges, but like, you do see that story a lot. I, I actually hear a lot can of people make, Yeah, I want you to talk can about I, Can I play, because there's a, an amazing book coming out of Crossway by Mike Kruger called mm-hmm. Surviving Religion 101. And it's about his own experience in uh, Bart Amon's, uh, you know, Religion 101 class, but it's a phenomenal book because what it says, and it's a good reminder, especially to conservative Christians, conservative Christians often believe that all you need to survive college or anything, you know, survive, plug in whatever institution, military, you know, whatever, is personal relationship with Jesus and personal piety. And that's not true. You need an intellectual defense of the gospel. And you need the capacity to hear what other people are saying so you know where the criticism is. And you need a, a community that can go to war with you. And if you don't have those things, guess what? Personal piety and a personal relationship with Jesus, I believe, will always be enough to get you into heaven. But you know what? If you lose everything on earth, you are limping there in agony. Because I, if you're saved, you're always saved. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But you know mm-hmm. what? You could lose everything else. Who wants that? Right. What would you tell the person listening now who says, amen, I'm on board. I want that, to have that, that, that strength in, in, you know, in community or you know, whatever you just described. Give me three steps, three things I can do very simply after I hang up this podcast that will set yeah. me up to, to succeed as a Christian, to live victorious. Yeah, absolutely. Be tied in, in a covenantal way. That means actual membership to a Bible believing church that has courage, conviction, and hospitality, whose standards are things that are self-evident and are not going to erode with the current evangelical, you know, you know, I don't know, trope. So you cannot be a, you are not going to survive what is coming on your own. 
Mm-hmm. All right, that would be like being in a little rowboat in a tempestuous storm, you know, and your oar just, your one oar just fell over. So the first thing you need to do is find that church. And you do that by researching. And I will tell you that it's a lot easier now that COVID is here because thanks to COVID, those pastors who are terrified to take risks are all doing so under the banner of loving their neighbor. So it's not going to be hard. Okay. If a church hasn't been open and has no intention of being open, you look around, look around. So, so you can't, you're not meant to do this on your own Christian. You're part of a body. You're, you're, you can't, you're not supposed to do this on your own. Jesus reigns. Um, so that's the first thing you would do. And then the second thing you would do is you would look at that, that church membership, look at those covenant of church membership vows, and they are vows. It's not like um, your membership to the YMCA or something. These are vows you take before the Lord prayerfully ask yourself and talk with your pastor about how you can help build this community. And then finally, remember, a good community depends upon your resources, but also your needs. So don't be afraid to share your needs. You're, you will make your church a better place if you share your needs. It's very prideful to just say, oh, I'm just going to share the things I can give. No, no. We all need to be both receiving and, um, and needing in some ways. I think that's so true. I mean, I've seen that in our ministry. You know, I do the Thursday night uh, Facebook group community Bible mm-hmm. study. We are live there. And the, and there's now when we log on, we see names that we've come to know well just through that medium because they're there every week. Right. But then there's some that I really know. And I'm telling you, it's the ones that have emailed us with right. deep, it's life situations. They need prayer. They're, right. they don't, we don't have the answers, but we come alongside them. We're praying right. with them. Right. Even this week, we just, I just walked with, you know, started this conversation with this woman on something that they're just going through. And I just feel so much more connected and ministering to them. And they feel, you know, refreshed in the Lord by knowing somebody's praying for them. It just deepens the experience of, of walking together in, in this, you know, trial that God right. has, you know, people, right. all of us in yeah. one form or fashion. So I can yeah. certainly attest to that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think it's worth the pain of the awkwardness. I think you and oh, I have yeah. talked about that. Like, Everyone feels sort of awkward. Oh, yeah. You know, Embrace the awkward. Embrace the awkward. It's going to be awkward. And if you're an introvert, it's always going to be awkward. But, I, you know, I think what you are touching on, though, is extremely important, that we are in a moment, you know, right now, God loves us so, so much that he has decided that we would be on earth during a time when he was going to shout into every continent, that he was going to roar with this pandemic. And... We must steward well the gospel, and we are not going to do that by backing off of the means of grace. All right, we need to deepen. We need to move more deeply into the means of grace. Um, God may love the faith of a child, but He does not love the reading practices of a child. Okay, you're called. You're called to get meat out of the word, not something. Do you think the church is set up for the next post-COVID era? Some, I think, some are, and some aren't. Yeah. I think I think in the same way that you're, you know, I just was reading in the Chronicle of Higher Education that we're going to see hundreds of colleges not make it. I believe that. I think we're going to see uh, just as many, if not more, churches. And then 
you know, quite frankly, church, wake up. Uh, if you think COVID-19 was bad, just wait, just, just wait until the Biden administration brings you the Equality Act. You, you know, you, th- you think you had to put on your big boy pants and your big girl pants and open the doors and deal with, you know, maybe a little pushback from the government to be church? Well, just wait until uh, your governor wants to Sabina your, your, your sermons. Okay, what are you going to do then? Let me tell you what, if you've caved now, Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not predicting good. The Equality Act, generally, to talk a little bit more about that. So that happens in China. So yeah, <laughs> I foresee- well, and, you know, the Equality Act is just, it, you know, I mean, we're all waiting to see what happens in the Georgia Senate runoff election, because, um, you know, if the Republicans lose the Senate, uh, you know, Biden will have no, absolutely no uh, reason to not sign the Equality Act into law. In the first 100 days, he's made that promise. I'm, I'm confident he's going to fulfill that promise if he can. And that is the collision course between religious liberty and sexual liberty. Mm. And so it, 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 you know, I don't know. Okay. You, a lot of Christians, you know, okay. We'll see, but I'm just speaking right now. I think, to the- I think sort of. I do think there's a sense that people generally think that that might not affect me personally. But you're saying really it will affect the church oh, yeah. in the in in what ways? Specifically, just to tease that out a little sure. for those who might not be political. Yeah, I, so you have to employ yeah. people who right. disagree. With right. Basically. The Equality Act would require the um, you know the employment of LGBTQ staff members. Um, it would prohibit certain. Um, certain uh, preaching topics. Mm. It's a clear violation of, um, you know, of, 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 of religious liberty, but it's what it is, what we will be witnessing is the collision of religious liberty and sexual liberty. And mm. um, it's interesting. That's and, a, and it was crazy. Well, but it was inevitable. I mean, you know, Lena, right. you and I've been talking about this for years. It's, it, you know, this has been inevitable. And I don't mean just since the 1960s or something. I mean, ever since the 19th yeah. century, when, um, you know, the uh, uh, romantic movement in Germany and in England and all through Europe created uh, Sigmund Freud's idea that really sexual orientation is who you are, not how you feel. Mm that created a new category of personhood. And this is 150 years ago, right? It was a new category of personhood. And we are now watching that new category of person, the idea that, you know, you are, LGBTQ is who you are, not how you feel, but who you are. We are seeing now that, 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 um, that invented category of personhood having uh, civil rights and running with it. And so, you know, we created, modernism created this monster. So here we are. What will the church do? But I guarantee you, if you're closed because of COVID, you will have absolutely no survival rate. You're the doctor, Lena, but I'm, I'm already. I agree. No, I agree. I think this is, this is a good word. This is great. I mean, I I think you're right. And I think uh, these are realities that Christians are going to need to hear and and come to, to terms with. And, and without, you know, I think the bend is to go the other extreme towards like this, you know, nationalistic, like I've critiqued that too. Yeah. No. You know, idolatry sort of, you're not talking that. You're just talking real life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, like a lot of people this year, 
I just couldn't vote for either one of these guys. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so every all the conservatives who are listening can just now declare that Rosario is the problem, and okay, that's fine. But you know, <laughs> just, it, you know, you and I talked about that over coffee, so that's not news. It's not new information. Well, yeah, you know, what? I I'm going to take this opportunity to confess myself as well. I voted for every office except right. except the, the president, yeah. and I I know yeah. that to admit that puts people say, well, you don't have any rights to admit. Right. Well, I disagree. I think you have a right to vote how you think is right, sure. and I. Right. I, I did not feel like I could vote for right. either candidate. Right. And so yeah. I, I, you and I, I are sisters on lots of levels. Yeah. <laughs> but but that doesn't mean you're not aware of the no. reality of what's happening right. outside of us, you know. And, and anyway, lots to pray about. Yeah. I, I didn't realize, Rosario, we're coming to an end of the conversation today, but I, I really want to, down the road, bring you back to talk about, I, I, just, your primary area of study was in critical theory. I did not realize that. That is correct. This is a very... Um, volatile topic right now yes in, in the is. church so uh, and i honestly i don't know as much of it as i'd like so i'm going to educate myself more this i, I love doing these conversations because it really pushes me to keep reading the book you mentioned is one that i'm halfway through is so good and i you know there sometimes it can be overwhelming to yeah. keep up with everything and right. um right it, how do you i mean as we wrap up here how do you do it what you know are there tips i mean spend less time on social media would be an obvious one but how, do you read books on I topics do. or yeah i see I, I do i'll tell you why i'm just really old school and you know that too I, I you know i'm 58 years old i actually do this crazy thing called i read books <laughs> and, so, and so speak to that you do I like do. an hour a day is it an oh, intentional or, or more or more i mean i it's a it's a great priority to me to read books and I have lengthy reading lists and I read books in order to write books and I read books in order to teach uh, in my my co-op and I read books in order to prepare for podcasts like this and I yeah. and I read I read books and I and you know sister Mary Margaret do please forgive me but I still have a pencil in my hand and I still write in books so I only read books from the library when I know I don't need to write in them. And that's not very, that's not very frequent. So there are piles of books in this house. And then my husband also does this crazy thing called reading books. And so, <laughs> you know, like you could, you could, it's like an obstacle course walking into either one of our offices, but you know. I, so I do. It's yeah. a commitment to me. It's and you know it's also it's also part of being a good listener. I, I, I well, and I mean I think people can yeah instead of be like set a goal of how many you know people will do that how many books do you want to read you know one a month yeah. for a year that's already twelve books more than you read the, you know, I mean obviously you're reading you know for a lot of different reasons but I think it can be so daunting but but the simplicity of just sit down and read. And I think for me, I found the greatest attraction to that is social media. And so you go back to, we've trained our brains to think in little sentences as opposed right. to chunks of books. Right. And so that would be a great challenge. I mean, this podcast is running at the beginning of the year to just even now, uh, whoever's listening to say, look, this isn't going to be a, a reading year and just start start with getting Rosaria's book. Um, no. no, I'm serious. I mean, thrive. Just, start, with, start with getting Thrive. Hey, I wrote the foreword to that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I appreciate that. And we absolutely are talking about Thrive here. And, and y'all, if you, you know, we've got great, um, a, a great sale going on Thrive on uh, our shop, the shegiveshope.com site. I think you mentioned Michael Kruger's book mm-hmm. in this conversation. Those are great, simple books to, you know, simple, but easy yeah, books to sort of put on your list and start reading. Um, in fact, maybe in the next couple of weeks, I'll post, um, you know, sort of a suggestion of some good books you know, formative books, I think you would say Mortification of Sin um, is probably one of those classics that every Christian single who's struggling, you know, with sort of sin area and non-single, but Uh, yeah, every Christian point. Yeah. And so there's, there's just, just start doing it this year. And so I think for now we'll end this conversation. Um, you know, I love talking with you. You I do too. <laughs> I love talking with you. I could go on for another hour. Yeah. I really wanted to talk about critical theory, but we're going to put that off and we will trust God to use this conversation to encourage somebody today. We've talked about a lot of topics. If you're listening right now and any of these things um, affected you in any way, I just want to ask more questions. Remember, we're in this Dear Lena, ask me any questions about faith, culture, God. And I'll give it a, a go. And we'll be back to Dear Lena uh, soon. And so just keep watching the podcast. If you want to join our Thursday community, just come on to livingwithpower.org. That's our website. Tons of free resources for you. But at the top of the page, you'll see a blue box that says join our community. Click on it. And I'd love to see you live on Thursday night. Hey, have a great day. Rosaria, it's been awesome having you. You are a dear, dear friend. And I'm so grateful to know you. I'm grateful to you, Lena. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great week. Talk to you guys later.